As James said, we'll be in Mark chapter 10 this morning, beginning with verse 17. As everyone has a chance to turn there, we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come before you again this morning, Lord, we thank you and praise you that we could be found in the house that you've provided for us. God, we thank you that you have changed our lives in such a dramatic way that we now desire the things of Christ. God, we thank you for his all-sufficient sacrifice on the cross that vile sinners such as ourselves could be reconciled to you. God, we thank you for the grace and the mercy that allows us to be here. God, we thank you for your sovereign will that would instruct us to come this morning to hear your word and As we read your word this morning, God, we just pray that through the power of your spirit, you would reveal the truths of the cross, that you would also reveal the truths of our flesh, God, those things that we are susceptible to as mere men. We ask that you would sanctify us through the word, Lord, transform us, renew our minds this morning, that we may be found serving you in all that we do in both our speech and our mind, God. May we be conformed to the image of your Son. We pray for those who are not with us this morning, God, that you would provide and shed light through the gospel this morning to them that they may also be sanctified. We pray for safe travels for our pastor to come and those of our congregation who are off elsewhere. Lord, we just pray for your hedge of protection over them, that they may be found worshiping you with our local church again. We pray ultimately, Lord, that you would be exalted and glorified and worshiped this morning. It's in the name of your son, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Amen. Mark chapter uh, chapter 10, verse 17 is, I'm sure, familiar for many folks, but I, I want to begin with verse 17 and read through 30. It says, As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But at these words he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, with people it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. 
Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms along with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So we'll begin back in verse 17. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him, knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? We begin by looking at the man who presents himself to Jesus. As we view the same account in both Matthew and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels, we see that the man is detailed as being young and being a ruler. These are the attributes that describe the man. Mark paints a picture of a young, spry man running for Christ. And as he arrives, he's asking for advice. His youthfulness exposes us to his, his age, that he would run. That exposes his youthfulness. We know that he's young because he's running. And he's running with great zeal to learn. He's a man who's gained a great wealth. And so as you can imagine, he, he thinks about eternal life. He wants eternal life. So he's zealous. He has all of the other things. So he thinks he has it all except for this. And he would run to Jesus. He wants to obtain something that's not yet within his grasp. Something still out of reach. For this reason, he turns to Jesus and he begs him this question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? The text says he knelt before him. This isn't to say that he recognized that Jesus is God, but that there is a fact, a sort of mysterious prophecy, and that the man would kneel before Christ. He recognized not that before me is God incarnate, but that here is a, a good Jewish leader, so he thought. Speaking of Christ, his upbringing would have certainly made him in front of someone who was an elder, be respectful, kneel down, seek his advice out of respect for our Lord. But he wasn't really aware that this was Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man. He is addressing him as good teacher. And so when he says this, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The man is under the assumption that there is some way that he can merit or gain or earn that which he seeks. What can I do? What can be done to have eternal life? He wants to earn this longer life than what he has. This life after the present life. He says, surely there must be something that I can do. What is it? What can I do, good teacher? Can I willfully act to gain this eternal life? After all, the law seemed to have this effect on the typical Jew. We know that they would look to things as if they could earn them, as if by keeping the law they could bring upon themselves some type of righteousness, some type of clout. We know that the Pharisees describes the hypocrites 
There were people who, because of the knowledge that they had gained, because of the study that they had done by the will of the flesh, they were some proud, lifted up people. This man was no different because of the studiousness of these people, because of the working uh, will that these people had. They thought that they could gain everything by action of the flesh. So works of the law would, to some degree, justify a typical Jew according to their beliefs. So why wouldn't he come to Jesus and ask, what can I do to inherit eternal life? Their faithful demonstration of law-keeping somehow accredited righteousness. And this guy simply needed to know, what must I do to completely span the gap between a life that will end and a life that will never end? There must be something that I can do. And Jesus responds, why do you call me good? This isn't to say, again, that the man knew that Jesus is God. He didn't know that God incarnate was right before his eyes. Instead, Jesus responds this way because he wants to unearth the reality that he is the only one good because he is God. No man can earn or deserve such a title. And he was bringing that to the young ruler's mind. There's only one good, that's God. So what he's saying is not rebuking the man for calling him that, but he's saying, in one sense, you've said rightly. There's only one good, he is God, because Jesus is the Son of God, because he is God incarnate, and he is good. So the young ruler is in some way unaware that he's speaking of this good God and to this good God, but no less... He is speaking to Jesus Christ. On the same hand, he's, by saying this, proclaiming the truth of the person of Christ, that he is good, that he is perfect, that he is righteous, that he does have the words of eternal life. Jesus certainly has the key to eternal life. He is the key to eternal life. This man doesn't know all that we know. But by God's providence, he's been brought to the only one that can tell him how to inherit eternal life. By man's unjust standard, Jesus was certainly seen as good by this Jewish man. He would come forth and say, here's one who is good. This Jesus. He didn't know Jesus. Certainly didn't know him intimately. But according to man's moral standard, Jewish tradition, Jewish culture, he saw Christ as one who was good. The problem is, this man wouldn't have seen Jesus as the only one who is good. And that's why Jesus responds the way that he does. And this term is so flagrantly used for other people besides God in this sense. It's just another Jewish teacher to this man, just another young man and he would call Christ good it really meant that he had no discernment of what was good he didn't know this was God he didn't know only God was good because he thought that men were good he simply thought that Jesus was another man so there's no discernment but nonetheless he's correct with his address to Christ even though it's unbeknownst to him and Christ says no one is good except God alone a direct blow to those who deny Christ as deity. For instance, when we think of the Jehovah's Witnesses, this is a direct blow to them, for he did not rebuke the man as the man calls him good. 
I just pointed that out. He didn't rebuke the man and say, you're wrong. I'm not good. But if the man did indeed call Jesus good and Jesus didn't rebuke him as a good teacher, as a rabbi, then he was accepting the claim that the man was making, that he is good. So by the very nature of this verse, being called good and not rebuking the man, by accepting the title of good teacher, Jesus is admitting his deity. Jesus is admitting that he is God incarnate. If Jesus were not God, then he could not accept this term. He must rebuke the man. But that's not what we see here. Equality with God was not something that Jesus sought to be grasping for. We're told that in Philippians chapter 2. And so Jesus continues his response. He says, you know those commandments? And he names them. You got to keep them. That's how you inherit eternal life. What does the man do? Not understanding who Christ is. He says, teacher, I've kept them since my youth. So we have to deal with this answer. Did the man really keep these things since his youth? From the Jewish perspective, he may have been blameless. He may have been blameless before his people, before his peers. But we know that it isn't what goes in a man that defiles a man, but what comes out. And not always what comes out is in public. Just because he looks like a follower, looks like a believer, a man of God, doesn't make him a man of God. That's where there's a a dissension between what the Jews believed and what we believe as uh, New Testament saints, Christians, Followers of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, you see, we don't work our way to heaven. We don't work our way to righteousness. We don't perceive ourselves as good. In fact, the law causes us to see ourselves for those sinful men that we are. And so we have to deal with that. This man doesn't think that. This man thinks, hey, I'm doing pretty good. I've I've kept this since my youth. In one sense, I believe he came to Jesus expecting to hear, oh, no, you've done everything you need to do. You're safe. You've kept the law. We, but the truth is that he hasn't kept the law because the law isn't kept merely by actions, but it's kept in mind and thought as well as in word and deed. So we see that God isn't looking for a man to do on the exterior, but he's also looking on the interior. He said that to Samuel as he's going to anoint David. He doesn't look on the outward man or his height or his statue, but he's looking on the inward man. He's looking at the heart. Like all other fallen man, this particular young ruler, his heart was in no way perfect. He didn't keep the law, though he professed to. So by his very profession, we know that the man is a liar. Liars can't inherit the kingdom of God. I mean, I... It sounds foolish in one sense to say it, but it's true. He lied then. He's he's not worthy. We aren't worthy. But still, the dialogue continues, and it says that as the man is saddened, grieved, he, he goes away eventually. But it says Jesus loved him, and it was a compassionate love. It stemmed from the man's sincerity because in his in his heart he really did think that he had kept the law because. Jewish reason, Jewish culture, Jewish beliefs didn't deal with the heart. It only dealt with the outward appearance. And so by everything that the man has grown up to know, he thinks I'm good. Before we were saved, most of us thought we were good. 
I mean, I know I did. I've talked to certain people in here uh, today that thought they were good. They thought their actions were pure. Their motives were okay. All of us have felt that way. But Jesus has a love for this man because he was still not understanding the truth of the gospel. Not understanding what God was requiring in the law. The man was still hidden from the truth. It was still a mystery to him. He had no grasp because his heart hadn't been changed. His heart was for traditions and his acquisitions, his property, rather than being that of admonitions over sin. He wasn't grieved over sin. Why? Because he didn't even know what sin was. He didn't know what immorality was because to him, as long as you kept this law outwardly, you were okay. He was hopeless. He had no way out. Therefore, we see that Jesus loved him. So he says, sell all you possess and give to the poor. Jesus addresses all of the man's sin with this one particular appeal to his idolatry. All sin is rooted in idolatry. And for this man, he had kept, so to speak, outwardly all of the law, but he still had not an inheritance of eternal life. And so to answer the man, Jesus says, sell all that you possess. Why? Because... This man's particular sin, this man's struggle was idolatry. He worshipped the things that he had gained, his riches, his wealth, all that he had amassed. It was more important to him than truly following God. So really Jesus posed a question to him. He says, you want eternal life? Then give up everything else. And for this man, we see that eternal life wasn't worth giving up all that he had amassed wasn't worth all of his possessions. He wasn't willing to give up anything, in fact. We don't know what happened after this, but we're left to conclude, to infer that this man left saddened because he didn't want eternal life bad enough to give up all that he had. He wasn't concerned about spiritual needs, but rather he just wanted a long-lasting life. All he had to do was give it all up. Jesus then tells the disciples, it's hard to inherit the kingdom of God. Previously, it said in in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, he told his disciples this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The fact is this man couldn't deny himself. It doesn't lie within the power of the flesh or the will of man to deny self, but it lies within the power of the Holy Spirit to move a man, to change a man, conform him to the image of Christ in order to deny himself. This man was yet to the point of denying self. He wasn't there. And we're not led to believe that he ever comes there. Matthew chapter 10, verse 37 and 39. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow me after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Every point that Christ makes, the man despises there. He's not going to deny anything. He's not going to give up anything. Certainly not his life. I mean, he's not even going to give up his possessions. He was sad. Why? Why? Because he had so much. 
so much of these earthly things that the flesh desires. Eternal life for him didn't seem worth giving up all that he had worked for. Eternal life wasn't supreme. Therefore, by this we conclude that Jesus also wasn't supreme. He wasn't looking for the Messiah. He had heard, but he wasn't looking for the Messiah. Because his importance, the things that he loved so much, the things that he treasured were earthly things. He didn't know Christ. And it's so that he couldn't trust in him because he didn't know Christ. He simply can't trust in one whom whom you don't know. He couldn't joyfully follow Christ because he couldn't joyfully let go of all that he had. The sad part is that all that he had really came from God. It was a grace of God to allow him to have these treasures. But it also stands today that God allowed this rich young ruler to have all of these things so that we could look at this particular passage and see the truth of Christ and the cross. The truth of salvation. And then we make it to verse 23 through 31. Jesus is now talking to his disciples about the difficulty of possessing riches and simultaneously desiring eternal life, life with Christ. And it says he looks around, said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And it says that they were amazed. Then he says it again. He says, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. And he makes this crazy accusation it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of god and they were even more astonished why because jewish culture fixed upon the fact that riches were a blessing from god and i'm not saying that they aren't but to them it wasn't a grace of god but it was something that they earned by being loyal to god by keeping the law they thought that they had earned these riches and so for Christ to say this man won't inherit eternal life even though he has riches for them it's like saying wow this man has been so faithful to God that he's gained these riches he's gained these worldly possessions because he's been so faithful and so trustworthy and so law keeping and then you'll deny him eternal life I mean he's worked so hard and that it will still be denied because their system placed so much emphasis upon the blessings of God that they failed to see the grace of God The grace that allows a sinner to continue to sin. A wicked man to live a long life. To gather many possessions, much wealth on this earth. It's not to say that God doesn't allow, doesn't bestow some measure of grace even to the wicked. But it belittles the fact that it must be a work of Christ completely in the life of a believer to be transformed to inherit the kingdom of God. And Peter says... This, as we get to verse 28, he says, Behold, we've left everything and followed you. It was the truth. The disciples have been called to follow, and as they obediently answered the call because the Spirit has provoked them to do these things, they leave everything, their entire lives, not just their riches, but their lifestyle, their family. The truth that Jesus spoke in Matthew. And he says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left his house, brothers or sisters or mothers or father, Children are farms for my sake or the gospel's sake, but he will receive it a hundred times now in the present age. Houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, farms. But, he says, they'll come along with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many 
who are first will be last and the last first. There's this idea that to inherit the kingdom of God, there must be a supernatural work of Christ alone. God working through the person of Christ, drawing us to him, causing us to see our sin for what it is, causing us to be repentant, then believing on Christ, laying down the things of the flesh, the temporal things of this life, and really, truly following Christ, desiring the things that Christ desires, giving up the things that Christ desires, facing persecution and affliction. They're guaranteed. And so we see this. And so now we look at this picture as a whole that we get from Mark chapter 10. And I want to sum it up like this. It's an imagery, an overwhelming imagery, an evidence of a sovereign God, of his ability alone to transform a man from the inside out, to make alive that which was spiritually dead, to ransom fallen sinful man to himself through his son Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ obediently goes to his death on the cross. And in one sense, if I really had thought about it before, I would have gave this sermon a different title. I would have called it, I'm fallen, but I can't get up. We're fallen man. We can't get up on our own. There's no hope for eternal life in the flesh and the abilities of the flesh. The truth is that all men since Adam are fallen. They're cursed. That's every man, even Christ himself. Galatians 3.13 and Deuteronomy 21.23 say, Cursed is everyone who hung on a tree. For Christ, this was his curse. For man, the curse is sin. A death that is sure to come. The wrath of God that abides upon our heads. The just recompense, the reward of sin. The curse for Jesus was to be hung upon a tree and face a wrath that he didn't deserve as a righteous man. But for all men, besides Jesus, the curse is that we're bound to sin. We're bound to the flesh. We're a moment by moment failing and falling. And when we're separated from God, we have fallen. We dig ourselves a deeper and still deeper hole. It's a pit, a pit of iniquity and despair that we can't rise up out of. There's nothing that we can do. Eternal life is out of grasp. We might as well not even think about it. We wouldn't think about it without the graces of Christ and the spiritual truth of Christ and His gospel because we'd be too selfish, too overwhelmed with the things that we love already, the sin and the iniquity. Who can save us? After all, our own efforts have only ever separated us from God. The will of my flesh and the desire to act according to my nature has only caused me to stumble more and more. The reality of Mark chapter 10 reveals two types of men to us. The first is represented by this young man. Here is represented a man who comes on his own will before Christ. We hear churches say this on your own. Come to Christ. If you need help, if you need this or that, you need to come to Christ. You need to make a decision. So here's a man who on his own has come to Christ. He comes because he wants something that he doesn't have. This man wants to inherit eternal life. You may say, well, what's wrong with wanting eternal life? And the truth is that there's really nothing wrong 
with desiring eternal life. But the problem is this man only wanted eternal life. He didn't want anything that went with it. He didn't want the, the person who came before it. He just wanted the long life. Well, that's certainly the big issue. The issue is that the man wants something that doesn't belong to him. The man wants to earn eternal life. He wants to do something. He wants to act a certain way that he can gain eternal life. And he doesn't just want to earn these things, but he comes with a sense of pride by the way that he has always earned things. He thinks that he can do the same here. He thinks that he can accumulate eternal life as if it's a worldly possession. What does he want? He wants eternal life. Nothing else. That's all he asked for. So the opposite man is also revealed to us. The man who is more still a mystery hidden in the response that Christ makes to the rich young ruler. He also makes a distinction amongst the two men historically in his ministry. We understand from accounts leading to this point, disciples don't typically come looking for Christ on their own. We haven't seen that to this point. You haven't seen a disciple coming looking for Christ without a provocation from the Holy Spirit. He's not looking for spiritual things. The nature of man is such that he'll never desire those things that are spiritual in their nature. Disciples don't come looking for Christ on their own. In fact, we see that Jesus calls his disciples to himself. He draws men, even so today it's the same, to himself. He draws men kicking, fighting against their will. But yet, these things aside, why does a true follower come to Jesus? Truth is that a man saved by the blood of the only begotten, this particular man, he comes not because he's got all that the world has to offer, but he's just lacking this one thing, this thing that will top it all off like the rich young ruler thought. He's not looking to top off his acquisitions. It's not the icing on his cake. This man comes because the gospel message is prevalent. The revelation of the person and the work of Jesus Christ, it has come. And Jesus' perfect righteousness has to the greatest degree convicted this man of sin and condemnation and the hell to follow if he were to be eternally separated from Christ. So on one hand, we have the rich young ruler who comes on his own will because there's something that he wants. And on the other hand, we have a man that comes to Christ because he's drawn against his will and then he sees his iniquity. He sees his sin. So we don't come to Christ for long life. We don't come to Christ for eternal life. We don't come to Christ for an eternity. If you've done that, you've missed the point. You've missed the message of the gospel. But instead, our response to the gospel of Jesus Christ is a reflection of seeing ourselves from the perspective of a holy God. The perspective is one that reveals how desperately we need not a lengthened stay in eternity but to come to a miraculous deliverance from sin right now. We don't come to Christ because we want eternal life later. We come to Christ because we need to be saved from our sin right now. We need to stop sinning against God because every moment that we do, we're just heaping up condemnation and there's a hellfire that's sure to burn that we're headed straight for without Him. 
No one can pay the penalty to our sin. We need a Savior who can not only deliver us from sin, but one who can also pay the price. The rich young ruler didn't see Christ as a Savior. He was a stepping stone to eternal life. I know one. His name is Jesus Christ, Yeshua, the Lamb of God, the Son of God, Son of David. He's the only one who can pay your debt. He's the only one who has the key to eternal life. He is the key to eternal life. The rich young ruler became to Christ because he wanted something. Not because he was drawn. He wanted an, a possession, another thing to add to his repertoire. But the man truly belonging to God only comes because he's been drawn, because he's been elect, because he's been predestined from the foundations of the earth before they existed. And he isn't coming for the benefit, which is eternal life. You see, that's what the rich young ruler missed. He was coming for the benefit, which was eternal life. But he wasn't coming for salvation from sin. John the Baptist said it in Matthew, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? The true disciple is fleeing from the wrath of God that abides upon his head. He's fleeing from sin that brings wrath. He isn't calling and trusting upon Christ because he believes he can be saved, but he's calling upon Christ because he thinks he has some secret to eternal life. This isn't true. For a man who's truly regenerate, the young man didn't want righteousness for the sake of righteousness. He didn't want purity for the sake of purity. And he didn't want Christ because he is God and he is salvation. He simply wanted the inheritance that he did not know belonged to Christ himself. It's only his to give. Can't earn it. There's no secret to it. The man wanted the loaves, but not the lamb. He wanted the miracles, but not the Messiah. And he wanted the life, but not the Lord. And so, as we see that, we need to ask ourselves, why do we come to Christ? Are we looking for eternal life, which is a benefit of knowing Christ? Are we coming to Christ for the benefits? Or are we coming to Christ because He is the true, perfect, spotless Lamb without blemish, sufficient sacrifice, healer, comforter, God incarnate. Or are we coming to Christ because there's something that the flesh likes, something that appeals to the flesh about living a long life? And in one sense, I don't believe the man looked at eternal life as if it were something spiritual where he could worship God. Certainly he didn't. He looked at eternal life as a, a place where he could continue to prosper he enjoyed doing the things that he did what do you come to Christ for do you come to Christ for eternal life or do you come to Christ because he is God and because you're submissive to his will because you need to be spared from sin and iniquity this is what the church must ask themselves let's go to the Lord in prayer Father, as we come before you once again, Lord, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, for 
those who might hear this message and be calling themselves those who are seeking you, seeking your son, yet they'd be coming for some other reason than to glorify and to worship and to leave behind sin. God, we pray for those. We pray that the truth of your gospel would sound loud this morning. That you would speak to the hearts and minds of unregenerate men and women. That they would understand, God, we can't come. We're fallen. We don't desire spiritual things. But God, if someone comes today, we ask that it be out of the truth that you have drawn them to yourself. As you said, I will draw all men to myself. God, we ask that you would bring them in a state of consciousness to be aware of the sin and the iniquity that we all have and be aware of the wrath that is to come, God. We pray this morning that if someone hear this message, if someone read this text, that they would see that you alone are able to save through your son, Jesus Christ. There's nothing that can be done apart from a supernatural work of your spirit. And God, we pray that this may be a truth in the lives of people today. Lord, we bless you and praise you for who you are and what you've done. We ask that you would continue to sanctify us, Lord. Continue to bless us. Bless our fellowship to come. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.